You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. It's 2003, and uh, my wife and I have been married a little bit over a year, and, and we and kind of decided that, hey, newlyweds, trying to get on our feet, trying to do some things, and so decided that, you know, I think it might be time for me to get an extra job and try to make a little bit extra money. So I decided, as I looked at my skill set and the things that I could do, I said, you know what? I am going to make some bank, and I am going to just decide to do this one job that's going to take care of all of our problems, and I am going to teach Baseball lessons to young kids. Okay? That is just going to be my, my, my golden ticket to everything. By the way, you cannot make any money teaching baseball lessons to little kids. But I, I started teaching them, and so I started teaching baseball, and I, would able to, I was able to teach kids that were 5 and 10 and junior high, senior high, college level, even some professionals. It was, it was awesome, just a, a wide array of people that I was able to coach and teach. But the hardest group to teach was actually the 5-year-olds. Like these little kids, because the parents would bring them in and they're like, here you go, little Johnny, he's going to make you a major league baseball player. Like, are you crazy? Right? The kid's got his glove on his foot and, you know, he doesn't even know where to, to throw. And, and I got so, it was so hard to teach because I kept thinking to them and, and I would sometimes ask, why, why can't you just hit the ball? You know, so I'm a terrible person, even worse coach, apparently. But I, I got frustrated because what was natural to me was like completely foreign to them. And then I realized that I'm a jerk and that I should probably remember that they don't know how to field the ball. And at one point, I didn't know how to hit the ball and I didn't know how to hit a cutoff. Man, all those things because you, you learn that over time. And I sometimes think that we do the same thing in our spiritual walk, especially when it comes to other people that are outside and don't know who Jesus is, that we'll kind of look at them and we might say, not out loud, but we'll say... what. Why can't you just do what I'm doing? What, what is your problem? Because we expect them to be where we're at, forgetting all the steps that it took for us to get to where we're at. Now, now our mission statement here is, I think, an important one for you to know. and It's to, to lead people to discover Jesus and follow him fully. That's why we exist. That's our journey. That's what we want you to be a part of. And so if we can help in any way, we want you to do that. But, but the idea is that that mission statement is really counterintuitive to most Christians and to a lot of churches. In fact, it might be the exact opposite of what you've experienced in your life. In fact, if you don't believe in God here today, or maybe you're just not sure about this Jesus thing, or maybe you've been to a church and experienced some Christians like this, this story might be yours. That there's some churches and some Christians that want you to be a Christian before you ever know who Jesus is. Does that make sense? It's this amazing phenomenon that we want you to act like a Christian. Be nice, don't swear, stop drinking, buy a golden retriever, like all the things that you should do as a Christian, instead of knowing who Jesus is first, and then as a result of knowing who he is, then your life is transformed, not just in your morals, but in every part of who you are. So, so if we use our mission statement, for example, there will be some churches or some Christians that will want you to follow fully before you discover Jesus. We want behavior modification instead of soul transformation. So we'll expect you to know what we know, do what we do, act like we act. Because what we really want is for you to clean yourself up just enough that you look pretty and are close enough. 
But in reality, that's not how you started. It's not how I started. We all started so far from God, so far from God. But then at some point, we discovered Jesus. We took, we took steps toward him. We asked questions. Dare I even say we sat back and we might have watched him a little bit. And it's only after we did those things that we were able to make a decision to follow Jesus. It's when the Holy Spirit got a hold of our lives and then the next thing we knew, we were, we were never the same. So just listen to me really closely, especially if you're brand new here and you're just kind of feeling things out. We're not a perfect church, okay? Oh my goodness, just look at me. Like if this is the guy that's in charge, but you know you're in trouble, you know, right? No stretch of the imagination are we a perfect church. But we have this internal motto, this, this slogan that we kind of live by, and it's this one idea that says, come as you are. Just come as you are. Come as, you know, where you're at, how you're living, in your addiction, your pride, your debt, your loneliness, your mess, whatever it is, come as you are. And this isn't some pithy statement that I found from some inspirational leadership blog somewhere. This is from Jesus. Jesus says this in 11, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, come first. Discover me first. Because Jesus was always about talking to people and interacting with people and engaging with people right where they were at. He let people close to him before, he ever, before they ever knew who he really was. It was only after they discovered who he really was that their lives were changed forever, that they followed him fully. So let me just be really upfront with you and honest with you here today, especially as we begin this brand new series. Here is the goal of the series. The goal of the series is to discover Jesus. For all of us to discover Jesus. And now that we're out of the Christmas haze and we're no longer eating cheese and pretzels every day, you know, like we're, we're into the 2020, the new, res, new Year's resolutions. Pastor Ed did a great job on the hindsight message last week. We are locked and loaded, right? We're ready to discover Jesus. That's our goal. Now we want you to discover Jesus. And if you've never, ever done that before, I'm just going to encourage you to just take a look. See what he's all about. Discover him for yourself, not what everybody else says, not what the interwebs say, not what your Facebook profile says, not what your Nana says. No, look for the truth. Discover him for yourself. And can I just say, if you're, if you're a varsity Christian here today, you know what I'm talking about, varsity Christian, can I just ask you, would you take your Letterman's jacket off just for a second? That thing don't fit you anyway, you know? Like, just take it off. Get into the soil with the rest of us schmucks and let's discover Jesus more, right? Can I get an amen from anybody about taking a Letterman's jacket off here today, okay? Because here's what I know about being a Christian, because I are one, okay? I could say this, I are one. The danger of being a Christian too long is that after a while, you'll stop discovering things about Jesus. You stop really caring and you put yourself on spiritual autopilot. You think I've arrived at some level, like you've, you've made it, but in reality, by saying that, you're just telling us how far you've got to go. You've got so far to go because discovering Jesus is a lifetime affair. It's a lifetime endeavor. You'll never arrive. So this invitation to discover Jesus is for all y'all, right? It's for everybody, Like right? Everybody needs to discover Jesus. And to do that, I want us to look at a very interesting story in the Bible. 
In fact, it's an interaction with Jesus that might be one of the most important that we read about. It's the story of a man that we get to see discover Jesus in the most natural and unforced way. Which is why over the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at how we can discover Jesus by looking through his eyes. So if you have your Bibles here today, or if you have your Crossroads Grace apps open, I want you to open to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is where we're going to be at in just a second. But as you do that, let me just introduce you to my my friend here. Uh, Some of you might know him. His name is Bozo. Okay, Bozo. Um, Bozo has got a squeaky nose, too, so that's super fun, you know? Now, now Albert Bandura, he is a, uh, a professor emeritus at Stanford University. He's wicked smart. In fact, he's one of the most uh, top psychologists in all of the world. But he's most known for a 1961 study that was, that was done on what was called the Bobo doll experiment. What the Bobo doll experiment was is that they, they put this doll similar like that in a room and they had adults come in and they would film them just beating the snot out of Bobo, you know, just beating them up a little bit and they would film them, uh, film them doing it and then they would, sh- what's up Bozo, come on son, mm-hmm, that's what's up. Then they would show the video to the kids. And the kids would watch the the adults do it, and if the adults never got in trouble, or in fact, if they were encouraged in it, when the children were allowed in the room to be able to play with the very same doll, they would do the exact same thing to the doll over and over again. But if they were watching the video, and the parents were beating it up, and the adults were beating it up, and they got in trouble for it, um, and they did actually, or they actually treated the doll nicely, wouldn't you know when the kids came in the room, they did the very same thing. Guys, if, if you're parents, you know that, that your kids watch you. Like they, they watch pretty much everything that you do. They, they, they're going to watch you, how you tie your shoes, how you eat, how you say phrases. They might even like watch how you laugh. Our children are always watching us. It is so annoying. Isn't it just like, oh, get your own life, dude. Like, just get out. Like, leave me alone, you know? As, as a parent, and, and maybe I'm the only parent, have you ever found yourself talking when you weren't talking? And you look over and your kids are saying the things that you used to say and you are horrified in that moment? And you think to yourself, we cannot have you hang out with your mother this much. Like this is just not gonna, <laughs> not gonna work, right? Because they, they do everything that you do just by watching you. And as we consider our spiritual lives, there's a whole bunch that we learn by watching. And we watch our parents, we watch other people, we watch them interact with God and how they know God. And even how we look at God is based on what we've seen. Researchers will tell us that most likely the version or the vision of God that you have is based on how your earthly father was. So if your earthly father was abusive, then God is looked at as abusive. Your dad was angry, God's an angry God. Your dad walks out on you when you're younger, God will abandon you and he'll be absent. So as we walk down this road to discovering Jesus, we just need to know that we bring some of that baggage with us that will no doubt affect how we we discover Jesus. And I want you to know, I'm not saying you need to do anything with that baggage. I'm not saying you have to do anything with it. We just need to kind of be aware of it. And at some point, if you decide that you want to discover Jesus and then follow him fully, he's going to have you do something or ask you to do something with that extra baggage because he knows that it's weighing you down. But as Jesus said before, he says, come as you are. Like, like come to me, baggage and all. So, so the hope is that he wants us to begin the process of discovering him first. 
Now, let me set the scene of where we're going to be at in John chapter 3 here for a second. In order to do that, we need to understand what happened in John chapter 2 at the very end of that chapter. And what we find there is a moment in Jesus' life where he clears the temple. It is a monumental moment in Jesus' ministry. And again, if you're here and don't know who Jesus is and have this like weird view of Jesus as long brown hair and powder blue robe with Birkenstocks on, like if that's your view of him, this story will shatter that in all the best ways. Because Jesus got mad. Not how you and I got mad, but he got mad at things that were wrong and that were unjust. And in this moment, Jesus clears the temple with a whip that he makes because he could see these religious leaders that had turned this place into a, an, into a den, he calls it, that were taking advantage of the poor. It was disgracing God's desire for people to come to him, come as they were. And so Jesus had enough. And in the single moment of passion, he cleanses, he clears the entire temple. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about that in a series in March, which you won't want to miss. But what I want you to know about is that Jesus didn't do this in a closed environment. Have you ever thought of that? That I do this too, and maybe you do, that you kind of think of Jesus doing these things in a vacuum, that no one's really around, it's not really affecting anyone. But Jesus clears the temple, probably in front of thousands and thousands of people. They, they saw him do it, and they would have been talking about it later, especially the religious leaders. And the reason I know that is because in Jesus' ministry, everywhere he went, these religious leaders would follow him around. Everywhere. Eating dinner, walking in the fields, talking to people on the road, worshiping in the synagogues, talking with his disciples. Man, Jesus goes to the red box at the Safeway, and, he's, and the religious leaders are there. They're everywhere. The religious leaders would go everywhere, including one guy that will be the centerpiece of our time together over the next few weeks. And we meet him in John chapter 3 after Jesus cleanses the temple. We begin in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So, one verse. We just read one verse, and in that verse, we are going to find out all kinds of stuff about this guy that we're going to follow, and it's going to help us frame the conversation today. And the first thing that we see is that the guy's name is Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus actually means, it means victor of the people. Now, that is a pretty solid name, you know? Like, when mom and dad raised him, they're not thinking, boy, I hope that you become, like, an IHOP dishwasher. You know, I'm not like, at Nicodemus, victor of the people, would you like fries with that? Like, you know, like Nicodemus, you know, nothing wrong with that, but like Nicodemus is like a powerful name. You hope something powerful happens with him. And in fact, it did, because we learned that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee is an interesting thing to consider, because a Pharisee is one of four Jewish sects. So, which means that the Jewish religion kind of broke into different denominations, and so it was kind of these four different areas. And if you'll allow me to nerd out just a little bit for a couple of minutes, I'm going to explain those to you, because it'll all come back and make sense here in a second. Now, the first group, or the first sect that we'll talk about is the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are an aristotic angle, a branch of the Jewish society. They were the uppity-ups. They were the rich people. They were the ones that, 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 that held high political um, aspirations and high political offices, and they also were the ones that held, held really tightly to the Old Testament, to the Torah, to the written law. That was all that Moses had given them. And they were so, so to the fine letter of that that they were unable to relate with people in the modern day. So they were unable to connect with people, which made them sad, do you see? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> 
Right, so the Sadducees, okay? Then the second sect of people is known as the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were believed to be the ones, they, they thought that they were the only ones on God's side. They were like the firstborn of the family. Like, you know, they were every God's gift of the world was the Essenes. And they wanted to be separate. So they had their own, not only their own spiritual beliefs, but they also had their own physical communities that they would start on the outside of the city so they were by themselves. They were shepherds and kind of that type of ministry or that kind of jobs is what they held. And actually, I saw groups of Essenes in Israel when I was there just last year because I was able to see these groups of people. They're still there. But the Essenes are very important to us as Christians. You might not have known this, though, because that group of people, that group of Jews, was the one that discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in Israel. And inside the Dead Sea Scrolls were some of the oldest copies of the Old Testament the world has ever seen. And that group of people is who found them. So the Sadducees and the Essenes. Now, the third group is called the Zealots. And the, these Zealots are, these were super Jewish patriots, right? They were, they were always, they were for Jews, for Judaism, always against Rome. Very, very passionate people. In fact, it would tip them towards violence. History tells us that sometimes they would hide daggers inside their cloaks if something broke out and they would just, they would hurt people. So you would want to be on the good side of a Zealot because if not, you're on the bad side. But what's funny is that if you look at Jesus' disciples, one of them is named Simon, who was a zealot, which means that Jesus kind of had like a gangbanger on his, on his team. Like, that's just crazy. Like, just insane, right? Everybody. Jesus loved everybody. But, but this leaves us. So we have the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, which leads us with the last group, which is the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they love the Torah, too, just like the Sadducees. But the difference was is that they were they wanted to bridge the gap between the old and the new. So one was the Old Testament was called the written law, and what the sad, what the Pharisees would create is called the oral law. Because when they wanted to connect the two worlds, instead of just saying this is what it meant, they added more laws onto the old laws that people had to follow. So in, in so doing, they were honoring the old by also adding to the, the, the current. So they would add a bunch of rules so people would have to follow. And so they were looked at in the, in the world as scribes and interpreters because they were able to understand the law and then do something with it. So all this comes together to know that because Nicodemus is a Pharisee, it tells us a couple of things. Number one, he wasn't a zealot. He wasn't trying to hurt people, so he was a balanced person. Also, he wasn't a Sadducee, which meant that he wasn't part of the elite upbringing, so he was humble. But he also wasn't uh, an Essene where he was separated from everybody else. So that meant that he was involved in real life. So Nicodemus would have been a Pharisee who wanted to apply God to everyday life, but was doing it by trying to do more, listen, himself. It was about what he could do to make God happy. You ever caught yourself doing that? You ever, ever caught yourself trying to make God happy by what you do? Like, I'm going to be nice to other people so that God will be nice to me. I'm going to give to that homeless person, give them, give them money so God will see how good I am. I'm going to answer that call to see if it's God himself. Like, you just don't know. Like, you know? <laughs> or, or, or how about this? How about you try to make amends with people? Not so that you'll help your recovery process, but that you might be able to hope God won't be mad at you anymore. See, see we try and we try and try to do things on our own. And what we find is that we're no more closer to God. In fact, we are farther from him and we are exhausted because we're trying so hard. This, this was Nicodemus. 
This was Nicodemus. He was trying to discover God by adding more things to himself that he was doing in hopes that it would make himself happy. Now, hang on to that for just a second. Because not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, but he was also very influential. Down here, we find out that he was actually part of what was called the Jewish ruling council. And the word for this is called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was an interesting group of people because it was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees together. A total of 71 men were part of the Jewish ruling council or the Sanhedrin. But the Sanhedrin was very powerful because it had legislative, judicial, and executive powers in both civil and criminal law. So in short, this was a very powerful group. And Nicodemus was one of those 71 men. So people in all throughout the land would look to them for guidance and leadership, but they also knew that they held their lives in their hands. This was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the most prominent, most powerful, had the most authority of anyone during that time. Everyone that looked at Nicodemus would have thought, man, that guy's got it all together. He's got all the answers. Just look at Nicodemus. But in addition to that, Nicodemus would have also been a part of a group that would have followed Jesus around, that religious people that followed Jesus around to the red box and all those different places. He might have been even debating with Jesus on some of the stuff that Jesus was teaching about. He would have been right in there. And I am almost assured that Nicodemus would have seen Jesus turn that temple into a WWE match. Like he would have been in the middle of that. All of that we see in just one verse. Just one verse. But as we keep reading, we get to see Nicodemus in a much different position than what we've come to know of him. Look in verse 2. Verse 2 says, he, this is Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are, are, are doing if God were not with him. So, so Nicodemus is now coming to Jesus. Nicodemus had been watching and now he's approaching he, he had seen enough, and now he wanted to find out for himself who this Jesus really, really was. And the way that he did that, I think, is important for us not to miss. Because how it says here in verse 2, go ahead and slip the next slide. It says that he came to Jesus, how? At night, it says. Now, Nicodemus is a very smart man. He's a very smart man. You don't become part of the Sanhedrin because you won the lottery or your cousin Jojo put in a good word for you. Like, that just isn't how you get on the team. So he knew that approaching Jesus would not sit well with the rest of his Pharisee buddies. In fact, the Pharisees hated Jesus. And so if your life is on the line, you take some precautions. So, so Nicodemus comes under the cover of night. The fact that he came at night is not surprising, but what he said was very surprising. What he said was very surprising because he came and he said, he says, rabbi. And what rabbi means is teacher. And actually, you'll notice that he says it twice here. He says, rabbi, and then he also says, teacher, right there. Now, if you follow Jesus, some of the religious people, when they call, they'll call Jesus rabbi or teacher, but most of the time, they're kind of using it sarcastically, like, you're such a good teacher, Jesus. Like, that's kind of how they use it. But, but not here. Not here. Nicodemus is using this very humbly and honestly and respectfully. But notice something very careful about what we just read here. He calls him teacher. That's it. 
Not Savior, not Son of God, not God himself. No, no, no. He says he's a teacher who has what? Has come from God. That's the distinction that he has there. Now, now this is a big, big deal. This is a big deal because Nicodemus wasn't ready to go all in for Team Jesus. That, that's what, what, not what he was doing. He's saying, listen, you're, you're a great teacher. And, and you might have come from God, but I'm not going to go anywhere past that. That's, that's all that I'm going to say. But why would he risk his credibility and maybe even his life to come talk to a really good teacher? It's because of what he says next in, verse, in the second part of that verse. He says, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. He says, he says no one could perform the signs. In order to understand that, this means that he was watching. That he was watching. He says, no one. He says, Jesus, I've been watching you and I've seen you heal people. I've seen the miracles. I've seen the things that you do that defy logic. And I've concluded this much, that you cannot do what you're doing without God. I have watched you. Nicodemus did what God is hoping all of us will do. He's hoping that we will Honestly look at Jesus, watch him, analyze him, and begin to discover him. And at the very, very least, that we would at least say, there's something different about Jesus. There's nothing else in this world that can do what he's done or offer what he offers. Because God knows that if we will do that, if we'll just watch him, then we will have begun the most important journey to discovery in our entire life. And for, and for many of us, there's a time when the watching turns, in, turns into investigating. A moment where the time says, I gotta see it for myself. And when we do that, Jesus is just saying, hey, just keep watching. I'll show you, hang on with me. Because the first act of discovering Jesus is to allow ourselves to sit back and watch. And what I love about Jesus, he's totally fine with it. You, you see it throughout the entire Bible, Zacchaeus watched Jesus from a tree. Peter watched Jesus from a boat. Matthew watched Jesus from a tax collector's seat. John, one of his closest friends, watched him as he created, did miracles and loved people all the time. But the one that sticks out to me the most is James, the brother of Jesus. James, the actual brother of Jesus. He didn't become a Christian, didn't become a Christ follower until after Jesus was dead, was buried, was resurrected, and he ascended into heaven. He had to see all of that before he would believe. They watched to see if it was true. So watching is a critical part of our spiritual lives. When we allow ourselves to watch, we are giving ourselves permission to wonder, to be curious, to stand back in awe of Jesus. One of my favorite stories in the entire Bible has a great example of this, this power of watching Luke chapter 5 is actually where it's at. So if you want to read this later, you can find out more about it. But, but Jesus was, was teaching in, inside of a home. Uh, imagine if you were like at an Airbnb and you let Jesus come in. Like that's kind of a cool deal, you know. So he's like inside somebody else's home and it's packed to the gills. Like you can't even get in there. And there are, uh, there's, a, there's a sick man or an injured man that's on the outside trying to get in. And he, his, his friends are even carrying him. He can't even walk. And he can't get through the crowd, and so they didn't want to give up. And so all of a sudden, they start tearing open the roof of this Airbnb, right? And they lower this man down into the middle of the room right in front of Jesus. Can you imagine that? 
And all of a sudden, Jesus sees this man coming down and he looks at the faith of the men that lowered him down and the faith of the man looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law lost their Old Testament minds. They were like, like they, they couldn't believe it. They're like, you are blasphemous. And they're saying all this side in, in, inside themselves. But Jesus knows their hearts and knows their minds and he calls them out. And so what he does, I just kind of think Jesus does this. He, he kind of looks at the Pharisees and then he looks at this guy on the ground. He's like, get up, take your mat and walk. And then kind of looks back over to the boys. You know what I mean? Like I imagine that happening. The boy, he gets up, rolls his mat, walks out. And as the Pharisees' mouths are dropped on the ground, what I love is that Luke captures what he sees. And in these words, he says, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. They saw it. Jesus did it in front of them. Because Jesus knows that discovering him is by watching. In fact, if there is only one thing that you take away from today, I want you to take this away, is this idea that discovering Jesus begins with watching before doing. Discovering Jesus begins with watching, seeing, understanding before doing. But there is a, uh, there's something that gets in the way of us doing this. Um, and it's actually this. Um, now, this is a Carisius arutus, otherwise known as goldfish. <laughs> goldfish, okay? Uh, goldfish, interesting fish. They, uh, they live about five to six years in captivity, and unless there's a toilet around, and that's much less. So, um, um, uh, they, they also are the most popular fish that you can buy uh, to, to bring home to your, to your kids. 430 million goldfish are sold every year. There you go, fun fact for you. Every year. Uh, but there's another kind of interesting fact about goldfish that you might not know. Um, did you know the attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds? Nine seconds. Like a goldfish will look at something for nine seconds. Um, now, do you know the attention span of a human? Is eight seconds. We cannot concentrate on something as long as... It's a goldfish, okay, right? We got some issues, right? And, and I just, as I think about that, like imagine if, if that's true, if, if we really only focus on things for eight seconds at a time, how are we really gonna watch Jesus effectively? If, if all we have in our brain is eight seconds worth of attention, and you might say, well, Pastor Brian, that's crazy. I'll give more than eight seconds. Well, we're coming into 2020. Everybody's looking for some New Year's resolution. I would guess that a lot of them are like, you know what? I want to watch Jesus a little bit more. If you start to say that, but isn't this true? I'm watching Jesus. I'm watching Jesus. I'm watching Jesus. Look at that truck over there. Isn't that a nice, <laughs> nice truck? Oh, so, no, wait. Um, watching Jesus. Watching Jesus. I'm watching Jesus. I'm watching. Oh, she's pretty. Mm-hmm. Right? No, no, no. Watching Jesus. Watching Jesus. Oh, wait. There's that depression again. Oh, 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 my anxiety. What's going to happen? Where, and we lose sight of Jesus because we won't give him more than eight seconds. See, see my friends, if, if even what Jesus says is partially true in your minds, like if we just believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then no one gets to the Father except through him. 
Wouldn't you think that focusing on him on that statement alone would take more than eight seconds of your mind? That if we really thought about Jesus longer, we would, we would know him more. So instead of trying to fight human nature, I just wondered if we just did a little bit of eight seconds of focusing on Jesus. So what I want us to do is I'm going to give you some things to think about. And I'm going to give you eight seconds to think about them. And what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you not to think about what's on your phone or your feed or how quick you can get out of the parking lot or all the things that you're thinking about right now. Would you be willing to give Jesus eight seconds of concentration on just a couple of things? You have a small timer here to be able to allow you to do that. And I'm just going to ask us, as we prepare our hearts for communion, to remember what Jesus did for us on that cross, would it be okay if we gave him just eight seconds at a time to think about a few things? So the first thing I want you to think about, and to give eight seconds of time to, is I just want you to think of this one idea, that Jesus came to us. Now concentrate that Jesus lived like us. Jesus showed us true love. Jesus healed. Jesus was deceived. Jesus was treated unjustly. Jesus was murdered on a cross. Jesus was buried in a tomb for three days. Jesus rose from death after those three days. Jesus proved his resurrection by showing himself to over 500 people. And Jesus ascended into heaven to prepare a place for you and for me. last eight seconds think that Jesus will one day return to make all things new, set the captives free, and bring us into eternity with him.
See, as we prepare our hearts for communion, you just spent two minutes thinking of Jesus. For a lot of us, that might have felt like an eternity. But I believe for some of us, it was just whetting our appetite for what God really wants us to do. My prayer for us is that we would believe that Jesus is worth watching. That we would stand in awe of who he is and what he's done. And as we consider communion, what he has done for us on that cross by taking our sins, our shame, our doubt, our fear onto the cross. He took them, he nailed it to the cross so that we might be able to be set free. He died on that cross, was placed in a tomb, defeated death three days later, resurrected, ascended into heaven, all for what? All for us. That we might look on his face, see him and trust him with our lives. That's how much Jesus loves us. And at communion, we get a chance to focus in as we worship and as we commune. We focus on Jesus every week. That's why we do it, because it's all about him. And so in a moment when these trays pass in front of you, you'll find two cups in there, bread in the bottom, juice in the top. Take them both out, hold on to them. We'll commune together as a body of believers. But I want us to watch Jesus, focus on Jesus. Let him be what our souls long for the most. Take this time. Let's look at him and remember that Jesus is so fine with us watching before we're doing. Trust him in that. Believe in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this time to be able to reflect on your son Jesus who died on the cross for our sins in our place. That as the public looked on and watched him in agony, he was doing it for, he was dying for all those people and us too. Our sin, our shame, our anger, our bitterness, our pride, all of it he died for. So God, I just pray that we would watch him for who he really is now, that we would know him as Savior, that we would have our hearts start to beat a little quicker as we want to know him more. And God, as we remember him through this communion, might our, our eyes be focused on him, our living hope that is found in him. Help us to be able to understand that better, to know him well. Jesus, we give you the glory and the honor for this. Be with us now as we remember you. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.